Hello, you are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I am Samir Keynes, economics and trade correspondent for The Economist. And I'm Chad Baum, a senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics in Washington. In this episode, we are talking to Professor Danny Roderick, the Ford Foundation Professor of International Political Economy at Harvard University. We'll talk about his views on trade deals, as discussed in a paper of his that's coming up in the Journal of Economic Perspectives, and in his book, Straight Talk on Trade. Danny, hello. Hello, nice to be with you. Okay, so first question is, what do you think the purpose of a trade deal should be? What's the point? I think the, 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 the purpose of a trade deal uh, should be what the purpose of a, um, that was explicitly stated uh, at the creation of a multilateral trade regime uh, in the late 40s, uh, and I think it's still there in the preamble of the uh, GATT agreement and subsequently the WTO, is to um, enhance living standards around the world and ensure um, full employment. What problem are they meant to solve? Though? I mean, what about the world means that that doesn't happen you know, without trade deals? Well, that's a very good question. And I, I actually, you know, economists are still debating uh, what purpose uh, trade agreements serve and whether there should be trade agreements at all. Uh, I mean, when we teach trade economics in class, the first thing that we emphasize is, is that uh, there are gains from trade and the gains from trade are... Uh, essentially created at home. That is that nations trade because they, it benefits them. You know, we take an inordinate amount of pride in the demonstration of, uh, you know, David Ricardo back in the early part of the 19th century that uh, comparative advantage ensures that uh, as long as you're just a teeny bit different from your trade partners, that uh, you can gain from trade regardless of whether you're more productive, less productive, and, and all of that. So in that kind of a context, there's a natural question, why should we be signing trade agreements at all when just pursuing open trade policies is in our own national interest? So the answer to your question is we have invented a number of reasons, and I think they all tell, they paint part of the picture, but not always um, the full picture. And then the, the bit that I've emphasized in the paper that you cited at the outset, is that trade agreements have increasingly become a vehicle for special interests and and special lobbies and business groups and multinational corporations, pharmaceutical companies, international investors, financial institutions, uh, to really get uh, what they want uh, internationally. And I think, uh, frankly, economists have been a little bit complicit in the process in, in terms of not distinguishing between free trade on the one hand, which is what, as economists, we're supposed to stand up for, and trade agreements or free trade agreements, which are often not about free trade at all, but uh, simply about uh, uh, creating rules that special interests and and corporate interests want. And I would say that that when we come to more recent trade agreements, which have increasingly been not about import tariffs or quantitative restrictions, but much more about rules, uh, and especially, you know, beyond, behind the border rules, then I think the gap between what we economists think trade agreements is about and, and what they have, they actually are about, I think that gap has, has become even wider. So, at this point, Chad asked Danny about whether he thinks trade deals prevent countries from engaging in a kind of race to the bottom, 
Without them, the idea is, countries might all put on tariffs in an attempt to improve their terms of trade. So they would try to help their own exporters and hurt the foreigners. But if everyone does that, then everyone does worse off. And so trade deals are supposed to tie government's hands and protect everyone from simultaneously trying to improve their terms of trade. Basically, that bit of the conversation got a bit techy, so we've saved that for a bonus. But for the rest of you, we thought it would be best to pick up again from here. You know, the, the whole terms of trade view presumes that really we are engaged in you know, maximizing some kind of a global or you know, national efficiency. And I think you know, the, 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 the world trade regime is such, such at, at variance with this. Uh, that that you know from the get go, I think you need to take into account. I mean, just to give you pr- perhaps the the most blatant example of this is that you know if if, if trade negoti- trade negotiators got around the table to say, okay, what is it that we can do to increase the global consumption possibilities frontier? Um, you know, they would stop everything that they're doing right now everything uh, in the you know current negotiating and then go after where the barriers are really large uh, because that's really where by the economic logic where the biggest gains are going to be both at the national level and at the global level where the barriers are largest is in labor markets and it's completely outside our multilateral trade negotiation why well i'm going to simplest explanation is because of course politically it's very hard it's not as if TPP hasn't run into a political obstacle, but you know there is something about the politics that's actually shaping why is it that we're negotiating, let's say, you know, investment rules and not negotiating temporary work visas, uh, you know, which would where the gains would be an order of magnitude uh, larger than under our current uh, negotiations. So, bottom line, it's got it's, it's the politics, but that of course is, is simply opens up the question. You know, what about the politics? Who is powerful? Who gets on the agenda? Those are the interesting questions. Okay, so in an ideal world, devoid of any political constraints, if we wanted to maximize global welfare, really, we'd be focusing on easing labor mobility around the world. But we're not in that world, uh, and so what we have is all these trade deals. We've got the NAFTA, the WTO. Could we could we go through some of your kind of specific problems in the way that those deals are written now? Well, I think our existing trade agreements have moved very far away from any kind of uh, economic rationality, and I think it's really become a kind of provision of the internationalization of certain special privileges to uh, groups that tend to have access to these negotiations. At the very top of the list, certainly are the special protections that pharmaceutical companies and high-tech companies get in terms of um, uh, much tighter uh, patent and copyright rules. Uh, This really has practically no intellectual rationale and reason for belonging international trade agreement. Danny is about to refer to something called TRIPS, or Trade-Related Aspects of Intellectual Property Rights. To explain, it's basically a bit of the World Trade Organization rules that specify a minimum level of patent protection that countries have to have. Going back to the history of how these so-called TRIPS clauses have entered global trade negotiations, it was a deliberate strategy by the um, uh, pharmaceutical and high-tech companies to shift forums from one forum where they were not 
very effective because developing countries were very uh, vocal and effective. That was the World Intellectual Property Organization, WIPO, which is the natural forum for discussion of patent and copyright issues. Shifting from that forum to the what would eventually become the World Trade Organization under the Uruguay Round, and uh, suddenly they turned this into a trade issue, the question of intellectual property rights. And subsequently, pretty much in every subsequent bilateral regional trade agreement, I think the, the various uh, monopoly protections that um, are afforded to these companies um, have become more advantageous uh, uh, to them. So that's, that would be at the very top of the list, which I think are, are, you know, really doesn't belong in the trade agreement, reflects the relative lobbying power uh, of, of certain corporations. So let's think about the, the counter-argument. So the counter-argument is we have the protection of intellectual property rights in rich countries. They're designed to you know, encourage innovation, you know, research and development that, that would otherwise not be undertaken without this profit motive. Some would argue in the United States, too much of that, in the case of pharmaceutical prices, too much of the cost of R&D is being borne by American consumers of pharmaceutical products. And so TRIPS or these trade agreements are a way to therefore spread the costs. Perhaps they shouldn't be spread to developing countries, but they should be spread perhaps to other rich countries that are also benefiting from access to these pharmaceuticals. So if we were to take this system away, we would have to replace it with something else where we would want to still have a sufficient amount of, of R&D. So can you kind of walk us through what do you have in mind for replacing it with and still having some of what we need on the intellectual property rights protection front? Well, I mean, from the from the international standpoint, there's practically no evidence that the provision of more stringent patent and copyrights on the part of developing countries increases the supply of innovations. I think that would be the issue. There's a lot of evidence that increases the transfer of rents from consumers in the developing countries to these producers. Uh, so the first order effect of these things is really is, is a transfer of rents. And I actually don't know of any empirical work that has shown uh, that uh, such intellectual property rights protections in the developing countries um, have a substantive effect on the supply of innovations, uh, either globally or from the perspective of you know more appropriate technologies or 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 or, or pharmaceuticals uh, targeted to the needs of developing countries. So in, in that kind of a setting, you know this is you know then the argument for having such clauses in international trade agreements is is mainly a way of transferring uh, income from you know one group of countries to another and. As we were talking about before, the point in principle of trade agreements is, is to have a mutual benefit, not simply to benefit one partner at the expense of the other. But there's a, there's a broader question. I, I mentioned earlier that these uh, often these trade agreements are a way of internationalizing uh, particular corporate privileges. In the United States, there is now a fair amount of empirical evidence that suggests that the existing intellectual property rights system is too restrictive that it has gone way beyond what is required to provide the supply of innovation. So in other words, the, the balance between encouraging innovation and creating monopoly rents uh, has moved way too much in the direction of the latter. I think so in general, there is, I think there's an argument for scaling these back even within nations in the United States. And I think the argument for enshrining them into international trade agreements, I think, is extremely weak. So let's try and connect this all into the trade negotiations that are going on as we speak 
renegotiations of NAFTA. Um, so there, I think it's looking very possible that the final agreement might not include a chapter on investor state dispute settlement, this, this chapter where investors can sue other governments. How do you feel about that? Well, I think in general that would be a good thing. I'm not a fan of, of Trump's uh, trade strategy, so I don't think that you know, what he's trying to do in NAFTA and with the NAFTA renegotiation overall is something that's going to uh, significantly, you know, improve the um, uh, the lives of, of his of his voters. Uh, but I think um, just, uh, you know, with respect to ISDS specifically, I'm generally my presumption is against them. And, and I think uh, I, I would be happy if it was gone. Now, originally, there was a there was an intellectual argument for SDS, but I think again, it's become it sort of has become universalized uh, into these trade agreements, and I think once again has been has turned into largely a rent extraction mechanism. The original uh, rationale for uh, ISDS was that you know developing countries wanted to, or, or generally speaking, countries with weak legal regimes wanted to attract uh, foreign investment. And the ISDS was a you know shortcut, uh, which said, uh, you know, we can't reform our tr- our legal regime overnight, but in the meantime, let's just uh, offer some extra bit of legal protection to foreign investors by creating this parallel track of international arbitration, um, and to the extent that that provides foreign investors with. Um, uh, a little bit uh, more of assurance that they are not going to be expropriated, then you know they are benefiting, and then developing countries benefit because they get a higher volume of foreign investment, and that sort of was the original reason why many developing countries start to incorporate uh, such clauses not in trade agreements but in the bilateral investment uh, uh, treaties. But I think you know that was you know some, several decades ago. I think you know the issue. Of foreign investment and the you know ease with which foreign investors cross borders, the protection foreign investors get, I think, doesn't have the same kind of urgency for developing countries as it is. Not because foreign investment is unimportant, but because in fact developing countries have already built up reputations for uh, you know different policy regimes and attracting foreign investment, subsidizing them. And I think this this largely becomes a way uh, has, has turned into a mechanism where uh, particular environmental or social uh, or, or other policies are become targets for uh, investors. And I think on the whole, they're playing a rather negative role at present. So ISDS, intellectual property, I guess I'm by now people who are familiar with your work won't be surprised that you're upset about those things. But so in the NAFTA negotiations, one of the most economically significant, potentially one of the toughest arguments going on right now is over how the rules of origin for cars should be rewritten in the deal. Another quick definition, which is that the rules of origin specify how much of, say, a car has to come from within the trade deal's partner countries for it to qualify for lower tariffs. So the Trump administration is pushing for tighter rules in NAFTA, which would mean that more parts would have to be sourced from NAFTA members for a car to go through with zero tariffs. What's your take on what should happen? I don't have a very strong view on, on, on rules of origin. Interestingly, when NAFTA was uh, first uh, negotiated, uh, rules of origin were the only bit of NAFTA, essentially the only bit of NAFTA that economists, many economists were very worried about uh, because they viewed it as largely as a protectionist item. 
in what was largely a trade, liber- you know, liberalizing kind of agreement. And it was so, protectionist because they essentially prevented you from importing parts from non-NAFTA countries. Exactly. So it was it was trade diverting that it was meant to create greater employment uh, in the car industry in the NAFTA member countries at the expense. Uh, of uh, exporters like Japan uh, or other Asian exporters because as non-NAFTA member countries, they would not uh, benefit. It goes back to the question of what is it that we're negotiating trade agreements for. If you look at trade negotiations from the perspective of, uh, you know, how can we, you know, increase employment in, 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 uh, in sectors that are going to be benefiting, then you're going to have all these kinds of pressure to negotiate, you know, rules of origins uh, that uh, are going to be protectionist. And I, I don't think that this is, you know, as an economist, I don't think this is the right way to approach trade agreements. So in general, I, I do think that rules of origin are, are unnecessarily protectionist. Um, And, uh, you know, I wouldn't take any particular comfort in their tightening. That is the end of part one of our four-part conversation with Danny Roderick on Trade Talks. Thanks to Danny Roderick for coming on. And also thanks to the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University's Woodrow Wilson School. Thanks to them for hosting the conference that brought the three of us together. And thanks to our listeners. Please do keep in touch. On Twitter, I'm at Chad Bown. And we're on at trade underscore underscore talks. That's not one, but two underscores at trade underscore underscore talks. Because a one part episode with Danny Roderick just wasn't enough.